0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 135, David Barron on Debating Jesus' Preexistence. In 2009, Mr. David Barron published the book, God and Christ, Examining the Evidence for Biblical Doctrine. He's currently working on a follow-up book. In April 2016, he participated in a formal debate with Dr. Dustin Smith at Atlanta Bible College, which is Mr. Barron's fifth formal debate. He's here with us today to talk about that debate. Mr. Barron, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited and happy to be here. I really enjoyed your recent debate with Dustin Smith at Atlanta Bible College. I thought it was a good, old-fashioned, old-school, scriptural, smackdown, (laughs) drag-out, ten-round fight. It was good and lengthy, and uh, good and detailed, and it it focused on the text. Thanks for coming on and uh, talking about this. A little bit later, we'll talk about stuff that's more relevant to people who have seen the debate. And here at the start of the episode, we will talk about some more background issues so people understand where you're coming from and encourage them to hit pause and go watch the debate and then come listen to the rest later. So if you're listening to this, I'll clue you in at which point we might say a spoiler about the debate or something more relevant for people who have seen it. So, Mr. Barron, how do you think the debate went? Were you pleased at how you did? Is there anything that you wanted to add or subtract from what was said there?
0: Overall, I think the debate went really well. First, from an overall perspective, um, you know, there was a lot of good interaction on the different texts. We really got to explore some of the finer details of some of the texts in question that relate to this particular issue. So I'm glad that that was able to happen. Overall in, in terms of you know my own performance in the debate, I'm generally happy with how I did. There are a couple of places where I wish I maybe had remembered a particular verse. You know, for example, when we spoke about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. I referenced a, a generic statement that somewhere in the Minor Prophets, there's a place where uh, a particular man is called the the angel or messenger of the Lord. And, and in that moment, I couldn't think of where that verse was. And now if I could go back, obviously, I would have said that particular verse. And one of the issues I had with my own performance in the debate was was a particular point where I misstated something about birth. We were talking about the meaning of the term Genesis, and Dr. Smith asked me if I believed that John the Baptist preexisted his birth. And so we were talking about pre-human existence in that context, and I said no. But that's not quite accurate in terms of what I was trying to articulate, because there is having a pre-human existence, and then there's simply pre-existing your birth. And I would say every one of us, pre-exists our birth in that we're in our mother's womb for nine months. And so in that sense, we are already in existence, but we're not necessarily alive and around and in the world. And so I would have liked to have highlighted that distinction and just the way the debate was going. It was, you know, relatively fast paced at that point and I simply misspoke. And so I did want to correct myself on that. I think we have to be really careful when we come to this particular issue around this topic because from a a social perspective there are elements that tie into this not to get controversial but for example on the matter of abortion are we in existence during that that period and if so then we have a a reason that we need to say okay maybe abortion not maybe abortion is not okay but at the same time If we're going to say that we're not in existence before our birth, then we go into a very dangerous area where now we have we've opened the door for things like abortion because essentially what we're saying is that that child doesn't yet exist. And so I did want to just correct myself on that particular point. There's a couple other very minor things I wish I would have said differently or explored in in a slightly different matter. But generally speaking, I'm pleased with the debate overall.
1: One thing I appreciated was how you two went into some depth with some much-discussed passages. One of them was John 1, and another one was Colossians 1. And you had some detailed arguments about those with one another, which are not often had and uh, you were uh, rebutting and arguing against dr smith's contention that the word of god in john one is impersonal Uh, it's like the word of god you see in the old testament which just then becomes expressed in the life of the man jesus it's not a pre-existing divine agent you spent a lot of time on john and also on john one arguing that no that has to be taken as a as a self as a personal being But before we get to any of those details, uh, Mr. Barron, how would you describe your current theology and Christology and the kind of views that you have now? Are those the views that you grew up with?
0: Well, you know, maybe I'll start with the second half of the question first. And in terms of my views that I grew up with, I was actually exposed to uh, a variety of different beliefs in my childhood. And so. You know, I spent some time as a child trying to work through those, but being quite young in preteen, early teen years, especially when I was introduced to those things, I didn't necessarily have the insight or even the uh, fully developed thinking ability to, I would say, be able to adequately explore those things. So I would say that that over time, my views have evolved and even evolved significantly from where I was at that point. And they continue to evolve as I explore the issues more and, and understand greater detail. And I think that's a good thing. I'm certainly not infallible, and I, and I brought that out in the debate. You know, We all are fallible, we all make mistakes. We, even if it's just on a particular text, uh, we may make a mistake and say, well, this text means one thing when in fact it means something different. And so as I've had interactions with other people, I've explored certain texts in greater detail and I've come to better understanding of what they're actually saying whether it was agreeing with my view that that I already had or disagreeing and so thus requiring that I adjust my own perspective a bit. I will undoubtedly continue to do this as time progresses. So, you know, in terms of my Christology as it stands today, I think the Nicene Creed really summarizes my Christology probably as good as anything can relating to the nature of Christ and his pre-human existence and, you know, just who he is in terms of His identity maybe as well. I'm not quite sure I could put it in better terms than that as it stands today.
1: Do you mean the Creed of 325?
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: Okay, so you would describe your theology and Christology as Nicene?
0: That's a good description of it, at least as one can possibly make, I think, in terms of existent language as it stands today
1: so when someone sees the title of the debate and it's does the bible teach that jesus pre-existed his human life and you're on the yes side they would probably assume that you're a trinitarian is that a label also that you would apply to your views
0: i don't think that's that's necessarily a good label no um there was a lot of nuances in there on both sides. I mean, you go from full Arian, semi-Arian, Trinitarian, and then obviously stopping back even further from Arian, then you have Socinian. And and so you get all these labels, And but at some point in there, lines kind of blur. So I, I really try not to take one of those labels because I don't think any one of them necessarily accurately reflects my understanding. Understanding of Christ's nature and role and identity as it stands today. So that's why I really like just the expression that he's Nicene, or that my Christology is Nicene, because it kind of avoids those finer lines and just gives it an overall high-level perspective.
1: Well, speaking of the Nicene Creed, it makes a big point of asserting that there was no time when the sun was not, and it anathematizes those who say there was a time when the sun was not, is that something also that you defend? Do you defend not only pre-existence, but something like eternal generation?
0: Yes, because if we think about what it says in, for example, John 1.3, it says that all things were created through him. And of course, that's speaking of the word, and I identify the word with Christ. What is the scope of all things? If I, all things, for example, includes time itself, Christ necessarily then predates time, if I can use the term predate, relative to time, because, you know, we're dealing with the limitation of human language at that point. But accepting that, if time was itself created through Christ, then Christ must have been from eternity. Now, I want to be clear that when I say my Christology is Nicene, I'm referring specifically to my Christology. I'm not necessarily stating that I agree with everything in the Nicene Creed. So, for example, the anathema portion you just quoted, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I'm not convinced that the finer details of our Christology absolutely preclude salvation, for example. And so I think we have to be very careful when we start saying that theology at a certain point cuts off salvation. That's a dangerous road, I think, to go down. Obviously, there's going to be a certain point where somebody gets so far out there that, that there is some type of cutoff, I'm sure. But in terms of the issues that we're discussing here, I'm not convinced that there's that firm line somewhere there.
1: If you don't like the label Trinitarian, I mean, why not describe it as a, something like subordinationist Unitarianism? Or did I misunderstand? Do you believe that God is tripersonal?
0: What I'm saying, I guess, is these labels, you get into so many fine details when you try to get into labeling that undoubtedly you start to convey something that isn't intended to be conveyed. And so that's really what I'm trying to avoid, is conveying something incorrectly. So that's, again, why I try to keep the definition at a very high level.
1: But do you hold a theology where the one God is the Trinity, or where the one God is the Father?
0: I wouldn't say that God is is a Trinity in that sense. Um, What I would say is that God is the Father, and Jesus Christ is his Son, and where the Nicene Creed starts to, to play into that in terms of my theology, is the idea of Jesus being of the same substance as the Father from eternity. And so that's the idea that I'm trying to convey with that identification. So hopefully that answers that question.
1: Okay. So they're one who see uh, no time when he's not, true God from true God, and so on.
0: Yes. um, In terms of his nature and substance, yes, absolutely. When we get into identity, that's where I think we start to see a, a distinction that we have to make.
1: So Mr. Barron, in your view, why is Jesus's existence before his human life an important topic?
0: It comes down to honoring Christ for what he has done. If Christ, for example, has been involved in creation and God has chosen to reveal that to us, it would seem to me that the purpose behind that revelation is to give Christ the associated honor with that activity. Similarly, with the events in the Exodus, if Christ was there, as I've argued in the debate, then similarly, he should be attributed the honor associated with those things. So it's really about ensuring that Christ gets the recognition for what he has done throughout history, not simply since he was born of Mary, and then in his ministry, and his death, burial, and resurrection.
1: So, to give him his due for all of his career, if indeed most of his career was not human. Yes, that's, that's a good summary of it. But I'm just curious, the debate was so text-focused, that's why I'm asking these introductory questions that just have to do with wider issues and background issues. So, one thing I wondered when I listened to the debate is whether or not you accept the traditional two-natures doctrine, you know, as expressed in the Council of 451, that he's one person with both a divine nature and a human nature
0: that's a really tricky issue and i see a lot of problems with that particular view so i wouldn't say that i am accepting of that view at all given the the issues that i see now i don't have a fundamental opposition to the view but given those particular perceived problems i can't say that i subscribe to it either
1: so then the logos that existed in eternity with god then in the first century this becomes human is it just that the logos gets a body and that's what makes the logos human or do you accept that the logos had to, you know, engage in a mysterious union with a complete human nature, both body and soul?
0: I think John 1:14 really summarizes it in that the word became flesh. So the word was the word and and as to his nature, John 1:1 says, you know, theos. And so at that point many scholars recognize a, a contrast there between Theos in one, one and Sarks in, in one fourteen, And so the word was something and then the word became a human being, a being of, of a fleshly nature at that point. And so what once was now essentially transformed, you might say, for lack of a, a maybe a proper term that at least I can immediately come up with, and at that point became a human
1: in the debate, especially in the 200s, 300s, 400s that were leading up to the Statement of 451, there was one side that basically thought that the Logos just took on a body. Current atheologians will sort of make fun of this as the God in a bod view. And then others believed that uh, not only was there a body, but the Logos combined with a body and a soul And, of course, if you're a dualist, then you think that an ordinary person like me or you is a combination of body and soul. So, some of them said that the word assumed a man, that the word somehow uh, combined with a human being who then kind of cooperates with the word. This was eventually called Nestorianism. But um, I just wonder if you have more to say about what was involved in the Logos becoming human. Whether you think that the Logos combined with a complete man or whether the Logos took on a body or if there's some third option there.
0: You know, I I would just view it as the Logos taking on a body, essentially um, ceasing to to have the nature that once was possessed and then taking that new nature. When we start to go beyond that, it really becomes simply a matter of speculation. And, And speculation can be very interesting mostly just because it's maybe fun to explore and think about the what ifs but the reality is that at the end of the day we don't know all these minor details and so to you know entrench ourselves into one view i think maybe becomes unnecessary and then we end up maybe trying to defend that view or articulate that view when it is nothing more than our own speculation so i try to avoid that and just stick to what we can definitively say from scripture If it's articulated in the Bible, then we can accept it. And if it's not, then we probably want to stay away from that, generally speaking, in my view.
1: Thank you for those uh, clarifications and helping us to see kind of more where you're coming from and uh, more what angle you're taking on these things. So I'm going to warn the listeners now that This would be a good place to press pause on your MP3 player, your smartphone, or the web browser, however you're listening to this. This would be a good place to stop and go and just listen through the whole debate. It's a commitment of time, but it's fun, and it's pretty well and cleanly argued. And I think if you're interested in this, you'll enjoy it. When the podcast returns, I will ask Mr. Barron some more post-debate kind of questions that will be more relevant to you if you've already seen it. In this second portion of our talk with Mr. David Barron, we're going to get into some questions that are more for people who have already seen the debate. Thanks again for doing this. I just wanted to ask you, Mr. Barron, some questions that occurred to me. Of course, we can't reargue all the detailed exegesis that you get into with Dr. Smith. But I wanted to ask you about the angel of the Lord passages in the Old Testament. I noticed that when you made your case, you didn't really appeal to those passages. And I was wondering why that was, because some people would sort of lead with that.
0: Well, one of the biggest issues when we come to those particular passages is that they're not explicit. Angel or, or, or messenger of the Lord is a very generic expression. One of the things I mentioned just earlier in our discussion here and then also in the debate was that there was there's a text in the Minor Prophets. It's actually Haggai 1.13 where Haggai is actually called the messenger or the angel of the Lord. So we have in different contexts different identifications with this particular title. When we look in the Old Testament, for example, with the delivery of the law, this is always associated with God directly or generically the angel of the Lord. And yet we come into the New Testament and we see, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, that a plurality of angels were involved in giving the law. We have to be really careful in going to one particular text and saying, this angel right here is Jesus Christ. Because in those contexts, in the Old Testament, we don't find any type of explicit identification. However, when we do go into texts I mentioned, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I also mentioned Jude 5, we find references to Old Testament events where Christ is spoken of as having been the one involved in those activities. And so I think at that point, we can safely say, okay, we go back, we see the original event in context, this must be Christ here because of that attribution. But I wouldn't want to go and, and just start pointing out every you know reference to angel of the Lord and saying, oh, this was Jesus, this was Jesus, this was Jesus, because we don't have in those contexts a clear identification.
1: And speaking of places in the Old Testament where a lot of readers have seen Jesus, some people will put a lot of weight on Genesis one, let us make man in our own image. And then there's also the argument from Genesis 19 Isn't there, you know, a Yahweh in heaven and a Yahweh on earth? Doesn't this show that there's two Yahwehs? I noticed that those didn't really play a role in your argument either. I was wondering if you could explain why.
0: Sure. Let us make man. You know, again, we have some ambiguity here. We don't have an explicit identification. Yes, I do think that was probably God speaking to his word, Jesus. But can I go in that text and in context show you that that was the case? No, I definitely can't. Similarly, in in Genesis 18 and 19 with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, 24, Jehovah rained down fire and brimstone from Jehovah. What's really interesting, though, I think, about that particular text is if we look in Jewish literature from the first century and prior, we look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, and in other places, there's a number of references that we can find that ascribe There actually having been three angels that were there with Abraham and then two with Lot. What we find is that this seems to be more understood in line with a divine agent who was bearing God's name and representing him on earth. Now, some say that that was, you know, Michael or or there are, you know, different attributions there. Maybe it was Christ. You know, I can't say for certain. So, again, it comes down to avoiding going into a text where we can't really exegete it in context and come to this conclusion. We have to infer and presuppose the point we're arguing. And and if we're trying to arrive at a conclusion— Taking our existing theology and our existing view and trying to shoehorn it into the text when there's going to be a dispute over whether or not that's the case doesn't really make for a convincing argument. I'd rather go to a text where I can go in context and walk through it verse by verse and properly come to the conclusion that the text says to show something like pre-human existence than infer my own theology into a text and thus presuppose that it's teaching what my belief is.
1: So, you're saying these were strategic decisions. You don't want to found your case on doubtful texts or controversial interpretations. You want to kind of pinpoint the clear what you think are the clearest cases, the ones that could possibly move your opponent.
0: That's exactly it, too. When we go to certain texts and context, I believe that we can start in in verse one or verse twenty wherever the you know that particular event transpires or tran- discussion transpires and, and just walk through it verse by verse and say, okay, what does this verse mean in this particular context, given the language that is used, given the events that we're transpiring, given the type of literature it is. When we can do that, that's how we can make a convincing argument, because then we're allowing the author of the text to speak to us and tell us what he's trying to say, rather than impose our own views into the text.
1: Yeah, it's not much of a debate if you have two people with very different perspectives and they just both insist on just sort of asserting all their opinions because then there's not a connection between the two. There's no place to get traction and move one another. And I did notice in the debate that you had studied somehow where Dr. Smith was coming from and you appreciated uh, what he was going to say about a lot of things and you tried to address those and uh, to make the case that the overall best explanation of a passage was what you were saying, but you granted a number of points to him in the process. So that that's part of what made it a good debate, I think. Whichever side you take, it's good to see people really connect and wrestle like that.
0: Yeah, I don't think we need to um, necessarily take a contrary position to somebody just for the sake of taking a contrary position. If somebody makes a good point, we should grant that point, because at the end of the day... As I mentioned, it's about trying to let the author of the particular book we're reading tell us what he's trying to say. And so when Dr. Smith made good points or made points that, you know, overall that are just true and I have no reason to dispute exegetically um, or historically, then I certainly want to grant those points. At the end of the day, obviously, I didn't think that any of those points either were in contradiction to what I was trying to say. If if that had been the case, obviously, I would have either been wrong on the whole issue and so thus necessarily conceded that point and, you know, why have the debate? Or I would have had to have worked out somehow how those things were compatible, you know, that being my view and, and the point I was conceding. But that being said, you know I, I had studied um, his work. He obviously recently, uh, I guess last year, completed a, a book giving three views on Christology. So I was able to read that. He's written some other papers and done some YouTube videos, and and so with that in mind, I was really able to study out his position, and and probably came um, to the debate maybe with a little bit of an advantage from that perspective, and that I did have a a detailed understanding of the arguments that he at least was most likely to use. And so I was able to work from that as my foundation.
1: I imagine he must have done some research too. I haven't talked to him about this, but I I do know that you have done some debates. I mentioned in my intro that this was your fifth formal debate. So he probably uh, hit the YouTube for a little opposition research. And by the way, I am going to put some links to those previous debates for people who are interested in seeing some more. Mr. Barron, much of this debate focused on the gospel according to John. Now, why start there rather than with texts which seem to say that Jesus was involved in creating the cosmos?
0: I think it comes down to being able to paint the most complete picture, which I think is what John does. He starts in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, and and works forward from there. And so, establishes the the existence of the Word, who, whom I've argued is, is presupposed, I believe, to be a person in the prologue, and then attributes creation to the Word, and then again to Jesus in, in verses 3 and 10. Then we get to John the Baptist. He says that Jesus existed before him. Then we have the ascension and descension text in John 3 and John 6, and then there's other texts in John uh, for example in John 13 and John 16 that I think play in but we didn't really get into those in the debate John 858 I have been in existence since before Abraham was born that's how I would translate that text and then 175 Jesus praying to God to give him the glory he had with him before the foundation of the world and so we have so many texts in a single book that play uh, an important role in this issue and to understanding it that you know we can jump to other texts where creation is involved, but we even have creation in the Gospel of John and like I mentioned in three and ten. So that whole picture and those repetition of, of what I would say is a, a motif of prehuman existence made John a sensical starting point from my view.
1: Now, someone like Dr. Smith would say, I see how John could be read that way, but shouldn't we start with the synoptic gospels? If they don't say that Jesus created or that Jesus preexisted, maybe that will influence us to think maybe John doesn't mean that. That's one direction people take it. From the other angle, the more liberal theology angle or scholars who are hostile to Christianity like Bart Ehrman they would say in the synoptics, you just don't have the preexistence and divinity and, and Jesus as creator. And then they think magically you now have this in John, which was maybe written, written a little bit later, like in the 90s. And so they view the difference between John and the synoptics as showing an obvious radical development in Christology How do you see the differences between them? Do you believe that the synoptics hint at or presuppose Jesus' pre-human existence? Or if they don't assume or teach that, why don't they?
0: I think it's important that we don't try to put the Gospels against each other, especially when we come to just the simple matter of what might be omission. I think one of the simplest examples is the virgin birth. When we look in the synoptics, especially, for example, in Matthew, we see very clear articulation of the virgin birth. I don't believe we find that at all in the Gospel of John. And similarly, when we come to the Gospel of John, we find very clear articulation of the need to be born again. And yet we go into Matthew and we don't find that. Um, I don't think we really find that anywhere in the synoptics, in fact. So there are things that John brings out that maybe the synoptics don't and things the synoptics bring out that maybe John doesn't. At the same time, when we look in the Pauline epistles that certainly predate the Gospel of John quite significantly, we find a lot of these ideas of pre-human existence within them, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians and also in Colossians. And Philippians 2 is one we didn't get into in the debate. That's a very, very disputed text and a very, very difficult text. Mm-hmm. Um, but that may be you know, another place where we find it as well. What we find then is that, yes— the synoptics don't have much in the way of of dealing with pre-human existence, but that's not necessarily to say that they didn't believe it, but it wasn't their goal or their motivation. Their goal was to express the life of Christ with the culmination in his death, burial, and resurrection. John, on the other hand, comes back after the fact and gives a, a much larger picture, a, a more of a uh, cosmological view starting from well before the birth and moving on into uh, him becoming a man and then everything that happened thereafter so we have to take it kind of i think from that perspective and not from the position of putting them against each other now with that being said i do think for example in matthew and luke we do find a, a hint at pre-human existence i brought out in the debate matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, where it says um O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Jesus had only been to Jerusalem a handful of times, and he brings in this idea of, of the prophets who had been sent and stoned uh, historically, And so it seems that in the statements, there's that presupposition that this desire extends all the way back throughout these prophets being sent. And so is, is much more involved than than just a matter of during these past three years, that handful of times that he had been there. So, I do see pre-human existence in, 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 for example, this particular passage. But overall, no, I don't think they have a very much of a focus on pre-human existence at all. I don't think that's part of the point that they're trying to, to make to their audience.
1: So, do you not accept the recent evangelical argument that whenever Jesus says, I have come to do this or that, then the reader is supposed to infer, ah, he must have come from somewhere to here, and so therefore he existed before he was here, like in heaven?
0: I don't think that that in and of itself is convincing because we do find other places. I believe John the Baptist even has that similar language set of him. However, I would say that when we combine, for example, in the Gospel of John, that type of language together, there may be places that maybe we should read a bit more into it than than just having been sent. But to go to that expression by itself and, and formulate our view based upon that i think it is unwarranted
1: there is still something to my mind strange about the the chronology that your view has and i think it's more strange even if you accept like a very traditional view of the gospels so i mean imagine that it's right that mark is an associate of peter and that matthew is an apostle and uh, Luke is an associate of Paul and others, and let's suppose the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. Then you would have Paul in the 50s and 60s, in your view, clearly teaching that Jesus always existed, or at least pre-existed, and created the cosmos. God created the cosmos through him. He's writing this in the 50s and 60s, and then in, what, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the synoptics are then just omitting this point, or two points pre human existence and that he's a creator. Um, but then they come roaring back in John whenever that's written, maybe the 80s or 90s. Doesn't that seem a little strange? The evangelicals smooth this out by saying that, well, actually, the synoptics do teach pre existence. It's just very subtle where they're sort of clearly hinting at it or something, but not quite saying it.
0: Well, again, I, I do think, especially in Matthew and Luke, we do have that at least this one hint of, of, pre-human existence. But that being said, I don't think that's necessarily the case because it comes down to the question of what was the point of their gospel? Their point of the gospel was that the life of the man, Jesus Christ, it wasn't to go beyond that in his, his all, you know, ultimate origin and his role in the past prior to this time, it was to teach what he had done on earth, culminating, you know, ultimately in his ascension back to heaven. You know, if if you think about some of the language and things that are, are said in Paul regarding Christ's present work among Christians, even a lot of the creation language that he does have, if we want to take that and apply it to the new creation, well... Just as an example, we don't have that type of language really in the the synoptics either. But that doesn't mean that those things weren't recognized as true of Christ. It simply wasn't the point. It wasn't to discuss what Christ has done subsequently. And so similarly, it wasn't to describe and to tell of what Christ did prior. It had a, a very specific focus on his earthly life. That was the point. That was the goal to teach people all the work that christ had done on the earth
1: so you see a difference in motivation between the authors that there's some motivation that requires john to mention these things but that's not a motivation the writers of the synoptics had
0: Well, I think John coming after the fact is actually trying to give a more complete picture. They had a very specific focus. Now John is coming back after the fact and taking some of the ideas that we do find, for example, in Paul, and developing those further and explaining those further so that people can make sense of them. Because you do have the Paul line of epistles where where he is talking about Christ's role historically in the Exodus, in creation. And then you have the Gospels that are giving... The story of Christ's life on earth. And so, you, and certainly there were undoubtedly oral traditions that surrounded all of this as well. And then you have John who comes along and really takes it all and puts the puzzle together and, and explains it in a way that anyone who had all these different pieces could then understand.
1: Mr. Barron, thanks for talking with us.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Again, Mr. Barron's book is called God and Christ, Examining the Evidence for Biblical Doctrine. You can find out more about Mr. Barron at his website called scripturaltruths.com. I encourage you to check out the debate. It's easy to find on YouTube and also it's embedded in the blog post for this podcast episode. Next week we'll hear from the other debater, Dr. Dustin Smith, with his thoughts about the debate. Today's Thinking Music was the track Future Journeys Sweet Memories Mix by Ars Sonor. You can find a link to that track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. And before we go, I'd like to say thank you to Tom in New Zealand for his monthly donation via PayPal. If you'd like to support this podcast, just look for the orange buttons next to any blog post episode.